0: Welcome to the C-Word, the Conservatives podcast. Today we're talking career changes. I'm Jenny Matherson, an Objects Conservator based in Kim And I'm
1: Chloe Rumsey, an Objects Conservator based in Greater Manchester.
0: Now, welcome guys. Welcome. Hello. I think in a surprise turn of events, this isn't the episode that I announced at the end of the last episode. <gasps> it happens.
1: It's uh, not very many times, actually, in the history. I'm sort of impressed, really. Um, But
0: yes, (laughs) don't worry, that episode is still coming up. It's just not going to be in the right order. (laughs) It's fine. These things happen. But we figured today we're going to tackle something that's been uh, sort of in our uh, spreadsheet for a little while. And it's just sort of career changes, not changing from conservation, changing to conservation and what people have done in a previous life, which I think is
1: a good origin story.
0: Yes. Anyway, to do that, then we have a special guest host with us. Would you like to introduce yourself?
2: I would. My name is Erin Foster, and I am a second year master's student at Cardiff University.
0: Welcome. 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 Hello. I love hearing about what people have done previously in their lives like before they came to conservation if conservation isn't their first love if you say what I mean
1: I'm actually surprised when I hear that people have come to conservation first actually I'm Mm, I always expect people to have sort of I don't know, done something else first and then gone, oh, it's not really for me or I heard about this and my heart you know, was set on it, that kind of thing. So when people mm. are like, oh, no, hi, I'm, I'm, you know, this is my first, I'm always very surprised. I think, how did you find out about this?
0: I'm always like, oh wow, you must have done your research or something. Exactly. So, someone talked to you at the right point in time. Good for you. <laughs>
1: what careers advice did you get, and when, and how can we how can
0: we repeat this? <laughs> and then I'm super chuffed, and I'm like, oh, I'm so glad something's working somewhere. <laughs> but yes, we, we may not have the most usual careers, so uh, it's fair enough that people don't necessarily know about conservation. Why do we think that is? Like, is it just that we don't appear enough, do you think? Are we too behind the scenes? Yeah, I mean, we are we very good at keeping quiet about our entire existence.
1: I think it's that we're both behind the scenes and sort of exclusive. Because mm. it's, that, it's that question, isn't it, that we were talking about last episode of, if you're anything that works in a museum, you're a curator <laughs> to the public eye
0: and yeah I suppose that doesn't really help
1: there's sort of a low understanding of what conservation is and if you do mm-hmm. hear of it it's like oh that's a that's a white coat job probably couldn't do it oh gosh or oh it looks a bit mm, serious or whatever
0: that's true that's where like most people I encounter who aren't heritage professionals, have no <laughs> idea what a conservator is. How, mm. Half of the ones that are our museum or heritage professionals don't know what a conservator is. So I feel like there's definitely <laughs> some sort of branding issue there. Like we're, not, <laughs> we're not promoted enough. People don't really know what we do. So it's fair enough that people aren't really finding out about this uh, career option for like a while. I'm also super curious to sort of know how people did find conservation if it wasn't their first career, if you see what I mean. Yeah, um, definitely. What were the circumstances that you discovered that this was a thing? Because for me, I mean, arguably it is my first career, but it's because someone almost accidentally found me, just sort of swanned in one day in a lab coat, like just very dramatic and just like, hello, have you considered being a conservator? And I was like,
2: (gasps) and I was like, (laughs) oh my God,
0: what's that?
1: you know that is you are the origin story where a mysterious person in a coat and a hat turns up and yes. goes, hello i've been mm. watching you for a while and you've got magic powers
0: <laughs> I, I think it was substantially less stalking than there was no hat but close <laughs>
2: <You're a laughs> conservator jenny <laughs>
1: exactly <laughs>
0: but yeah so I, I suppose i did have that i did have that but then i sort of chickened out and i studied something else initially at university and stuff and then i was sort of brave enough to do the conservation degree
2: I sort of worked backwards. Ooh. I did something else for 10 years. And when I wow. lost my job due to the pandemic, I sort of looked at what I thought would be a cool job. And then I said, how, what, are those, what kind of degree do those people have? And I kept seeing conservation, preventative conservation, all this stuff um, listed in these job descriptions. And I thought, what the heck is that? <laughs> And so then I started looking it up online and I thought, oh, that sounds like a really cool job. And so that's kind of how I switched into conservation because I have no background in it whatsoever.
0: Oh, fabulous. I love it. Yeah. What what did you do for 10 years out of curiosity?
2: I was an audiologist.
0: Oh, cool. Silly question, but what does that mean?
2: So um, I was... A doctor of audiology, which we basically do hearing and balance testing and sell hearing aids. Oh, amazing. Yeah. That's
0: pretty badass, actually. I like that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, it was definitely a good job, but I feel like this fits me a lot better.
0: That's amazing. How are you finding conservation? Like, how, how are you finding the transition from medical profession to, to conservation?
2: Quite difficult at times, but um, I think this, the material is so interesting. And it kind of combines all of the things that I like. So it keeps the science aspect, which I liked about my previous job, mm. and sort of that sort of methodical approach to yeah. problems. But then you get more creativity, a lot more creativity, and you also get historical yeah. information. So kind of combines all three of those things together, which I really like.
0: Uh, see, I, I suppose I considered other careers, like, at the point where I met the conservator, right? the conservator as if it's (laughs) as if it's an archetype (laughs) anyway when i when i met her i I was sort of thinking of um either doing archaeology but then everyone told me that was a bad idea so i was like fine rubbish advice by the way everyone needs archaeologists um (laughs) but instead i was thinking of going into physics like either theoretical physics oh wow or astronomy specifically so like those were sort of my my sort of options because i was really into physics so i sort of get what you mean about the sort of like scientific approach and that sort of thing like i guess conservation sort of marries the two worlds that i sort of wanted to get into which is sort of science but also history and archaeology and stuff and it just sort of it's a beautiful venn diagram i really like that i found it
2: (laughs) yeah and i think i mean at least myself, I had never even heard of conservation before until hmm. a year, like a year and a half ago. So I think we need to be hitting the streets maybe with some signs <laughs> or something to tell people about it. Because even when people are asking me what degree I'm doing, a lot of people say, oh, what's that? Yeah, And they don't really know. And then I kind of explain it and they th- they say, oh, that sounds really cool. Or when I share pictures of things I'm doing on social media, Mm. all my friends back at home say, oh, wow, that looks so awesome. And oh, you get to clean these museum objects. That's so neat. And I just think, you know, spreading the word about conservation is is a good thing, because at least for me, I I didn't know it was even an option.
0: Well, yeah, exactly right. And and that's the thing. It's a really cool job. But you yeah. need to know it exists to be able to think that you should do that, you know. So it's, uh, it's definitely a marketing issue that in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Chloe, do you want to tell us about your origin story?
1: So I started doing, uh, I did an archaeology A-level. So just, I don't know if A-level means anything to our non-UK audience. I'm, I mean, it barely does to me. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> all right. I was between the ages of 16 and 18 doing school that wasn't compulsory. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, cool. <laughs> Medium level further education. <laughs> uh, so I was doing an archaeology A level and I think in the first week or something of it they were t- talking about where where d- d- is a degree and someone said, "Oh, and Cardiff's got archaeology as well. It's really good. They're better known for their conservation courses, which are really uh, really famous." And I remembered this, but didn't really sort of I remember thinking, "Oh, science. Oh, that's interesting, but scary. I'm a, an archaeologist sort of thing. And then I tried to be an academic archaeologist, and I, f- just, I find reading and writing very difficult and <laughs> you know dyslexic <laughs> person who uh, is interested in the kind of archaeology that other people aren't.: And I remember looking at jobs. Thinking, what if I don't want to do academic archaeology? I'll do practical archaeology. And at the time, laughably, there were no jobs in archaeology, but loads of jobs jobs in conservation.
0: Oh, what a different time!
1: <laughs> and I know. And at the same time, I my boyfriend was now fiance is now was uh, living in South Wales, and I remember it kind of all like clicking together like a puzzle that had been whirring away for a
0: while, like. <laughs> The universe is trying to tell you something.
1: (laughs) And then I, you know, basically the next day called up Jane and said, Hello, can I do conservation please? And she said, (laughs) Probably. (laughs) (laughs) Come and meet us first. Because I was still in university, it is my first career, but I was full on thinking I was gonna do something else. But I already knew about it. I just didn't think it was it was a great option, but I didn't think it was my great option. Yeah until it became really obvious that it was and I should have done it from the start
0: good origin story I like it but yeah so I basically just um, asked people on social media you know our listeners and things uh, what's if conservation wasn't their first career what had they done before in a previous life Um, and we got some great answers they've been really fun to read through actually Uh, so I thought uh, i would read some of them out now um hannah says it's her first proper career <laughs> mm-hmm. but that she trained and worked as a costume maker oh that's cool but then moved into conservation but she did spend several summers making costumes for the lion king and i'm like it doesn't <gasps> oh, cool it sort of doesn't <laughs> matter what you say that's cool you and have me things. at lion king <laughs> diana said that she spent 10 years as an archaeologist, and he, I Archaeology is a real theme.
1: It really is. Mm.
0: I feel like a lot of people have that as their sort of origin story. Like, I feel like there must be some sort of conversion rate for archaeologists becoming conservators. <laughs>
1: I really do. Oh, definitely. I reckon it's because of finding out about it. It's easier if you're coming from somewhere that is strongly associated with conservation.
0: Like it, now, I'm having flashbacks to uh, to the Iceman sort of documentaries when I was a kid, yes, and uh, obviously the Vasa in in Sweden as well, and obviously really conservation heavy endeavors, right? <laughs> 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 Although I didn't really hear the word conservator, but more like it's being preserved, which I you know is a mammoth yeah. task and stuff like that. So it's sort of interesting.
1: Yeah, so I went to see Ötzi, um when he oh, was amazing. in Bolzano in the mummy museum I, and there was loads about the preservation and i think maybe because it wasn't in english i didn't see the word conservation and so that didn't like mm. you know push the mechanism of the of the uh <laughs> of the whatever it was i said on
0: <laughs> yeah yeah with utzi in particular i feel like there was a lot of there were so many documentaries and i was so obsessed with them I just remember them talking a lot about what scientists were doing, so I think it was like very much sort yeah. of a, scientists are doing this. People in lab coats. Yeah,
1: the scans of this and yeah. the X-rays of that. Yeah, definitely.
0: And then ultimately, everyone was just someone in a lab coat for a little bit. <laughs> Some of which may have been a conservator, you know. Yes, it's hard to say. But I feel like thinking back, it was very sort of science heavy. If you see what I mean.
2: I think we need like our own Indiana Jones to kind of make conservation, really cool, you know?
1: Yeah, definitely. Is this a, a, are you offering? No. (laughs) You sure? That could be great. I mean, I maybe would if I got a whip (laughs) and a hat. What would you be doing with the whip? Also,
0: what kind of hat?
1: (laughs) Mm, You could have like a, a piece of cotton tape instead of a
0: whip. You don't get much of a snap out of that, I have to say.
1: No, true. You could fashion one
2: out of Tyvek. What if I just like had my tools... My conservation tools
0: on a belt. That's quite good.
1: Or in a lab coat.
0: Anyway, sorry, Twitter. <laughs> oh yeah, that that's how we started. But yeah, no, I just feel like loads of the people that you and I went to university with back in our day, Chloe, that oh, yeah. uh, a lot of people had come from archaeology. I just feel like there were a lot of former... Archaeologists, I was going to say reformed
1: archaeologists. (laughs) (laughs) Rehabbed archaeologists.
0: (laughs) They've come in from the cold and they're a bit warmer now. (laughs) They've washed their
1: hands.
0: (laughs) I'm so sorry, archaeologists. Um... (laughs) But I just felt that there were a lot of people who came from an archaeology background. And I think that's super interesting. But yes, as you say, maybe it's just that the sort of the lingo is, you know, bandied about a bit and they they, i guess have contact with conservators or conservation in some way that a lot of other people don't yeah uh, Vera i said that they started as a ceramics artist and designer it's really fun when people start as sort of makers of things and then want to yeah look after the thing later not necessarily their own thing but more because vera said that they really wanted to work in ceramics conservation specifically uh, and that sort of makes sense as a sort of transition uh to me
1: We've said that before, haven't we, about um, the the huge value of craft in conservation. Well, yeah. um, was it Jonathan Ashley Smith?
0: It was. Back in one of the earlier
1: episodes.
0: It very much was. Yeah. We were linked to yeah. it.
1: If you think you don't want to do any writing and you want to progress with conservation, just go <laughs> and like do some stitching or something or like make a pot out of self-dry clay. Something like that. Just you can't go wrong, can you, with hand skills? There's no
0: wasted time. That's true. There is a certain amount of writing involved in conservation because you do have to document things. Yes, but, yes. Uh... <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> Make stuff, people.
0: <laughs> and also, as we've already mentioned, like creativity can be mm-hmm. a, a really great asset in in conservation. So that's, uh, I think, it's just sort of a natural fit, really. So it was, it was sort of fun to see people saying that.
1: And the transferable skills from there, I suppose, is um, an insight into like communication with artists and like the the goals of an artist and the the feelings and
0: perceptions of what the purpose of the art might be oh yeah yeah i suppose mm-hmm. i hadn't really considered that angle i guess i immediately went to sort of the material science mm. sort mm-hmm. of side where you sort of know how clay behaves and how it will have been fired and then what's involved with making and glaze and stuff like that you would have sort of um a knowledge of the materials and the processes involved even if the modern processes as opposed to ones from thousands of years ago but that he would still have sort of sort of understanding of the material that might be a bit more thorough mm. than than mine <laughs> having not really made a lot of pottery for example. <laughs> Louisa first worked as an accounts and admin clerk for several companies and then a commissioned officer in the RAF so that's the Royal wow. Air Force. That is super cool. That's really cool. What a transition.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I'm thinking that those are two very different careers and it's it's it's, really it's similar to where you came from Erin with the like not really arts.
0: No. Yeah. And yeah, it's sort of a completely different thing. Mm. Uh, it's super cool. Mandy was a pensions administrator and then a web developer. Again, we've had quite a few people say they sort of came from IT backgrounds, which mm. just makes sense because there are a lot of them. <laughs> um, in today's society, there are a lot of IT people <laughs> just in general. <laughs> Lucy said that she was an assistant school librarian. And again, I've noticed a pattern of librarians coming through. Ah,
1: that's a good one. Do they tend towards paper conservation?
0: That is a good question. Um, Actually, looking at the three who said librarian, only one of them is a book and paper conservator.
1: Oh, (laughs) very interesting.
2: Yeah, my supervisor at my placement this summer, she was a rare books librarian and then ended up taking book and paper conservation Mm, courses.
0: Cool. So it's definitely like a pattern of librarians as well. Yeah, not always going into book and paper, which is sort of fascinating. M says that she was an illustrator, uh, specifically of children's books, which I, which is adorable and I love. Uh, they are not an art conservator, they say. So I've, I, I like that they've preempted my next question, which is going to be, I wonder if you're some sort of art conservator. No, did not say what kind of conservator they were. Just not an art conservator. I really wanted to be something industrial now. Was that bad? I just wanted to be like, I look after ships. <laughs> <laughs> Leanne used to be a designer in the fashion industry and worked for places like uh, Marks and Spencers and all sorts of things.
1: And Leanne is a textiles conservator, isn't she? So that's a good link.
0: Yes, definitely. Um, I like that. And another, yes, someone else said that they used to be a knitwear designer and is now a textile conservator. Oh, love it. Hmm. Abigail said that she'd... uh, uh, as a teacher, has seen some amazing uh, previous careers uh, amongst her students. So that's things like uh, her favorite cemetery tour guide. Wow. Mm. Which is very specific and I love it. I'm here for it. Other examples include graphic designer, publisher, illustrator, editors, uh, and she includes mothers, which I thought was oh, nice. Yeah. So yeah. People, people finding a career after having had children. And and that's super cool. Again, I wonder how that happens. Like, have you met another conservator who is a mother or have you? I, I'm super curious how people who may have had a completely different career and then also had children, how they will have come across conservation. Super curious. You know, g- good for you. <laughs> Welcome. Uh, someone else said, editors, uh, like someone else who does a lot of courses and training, said that they find that loads of, loads of their students are editors. And I'm like, how? Like, is, it, is it something in the publishing industry that just makes people want to do something with their hands? I'm confused. <laughs> what, what is this pattern? If there are more teachers out there who know about this, I, I want answers. <laughs>
1: there does seem to be two sides of this, doesn't there? And, and maybe, Erin, you'll um, let us know if this fits with how you felt that either there's people coming from a similar area so art or libraries or something like that so they've got co- they've they're mm-hmm. doing something and then they see something think oh yeah that that sounds like a really good step towards something that's more them and yeah then there's the drastic change from something very <laughs> like computery or sciency or you know admin It seems like a more sort of, I suppose, a a drastic switch. I mean, I think mine was kind of a career 180, if you will.
2: Mm. I just think that uh, for me, it was more of a, when I lost my job, I thought, do I want to look for a new job in this career Mm. or do I want to try something else? And I did think for a while before that, that I didn't really love what I was doing and... You know, when you're working with patients every day, yeah. you really should. Yeah. You know, have a lot of passion for it. It's a tough job to be talking to people about hearing loss yeah. and all the issues mm. that go along with it if you're not really devoted to that career. And yeah, like I said before, I just think I have a lot of interests, but I I just never none of those interests ever seemed like it could be a job.
0: Mm. Yeah.
2: Do you know what I mean? I was one of those kids in school where they would do those little career things and it would be like a little aptitude test. Oh, what kind of job should you go into? Oh, you're at art or business or whatever. And mine was always like in the center. No. Kind of like likes too many things. <laughs> can't can't compute. <laughs> um, but I mean it does combine a lot of craft You know, working with your hands Mm. and kind of a touch of art, you know, if you're doing ceramics, retouching or something like that. But yeah, I I still don't really know how I decided to just say, all right, I'm moving to a different country and starting a new job in the middle of a pandemic. That sounds like a good
0: idea.
1: There's already a level, level of chaos in a pandemic, isn't there? So how bad can it really be?
0: Yeah. And also, it's important to find your passion in life. I'm glad you found something that you like. That's really it, exactly. good.
2: Yeah. You're never too old to switch. No,
1: definitely not. Definitely. Yeah,
2: Definitely. I think a lot of people feel, and I thought that a lot of times too, you know, oh, you know, I've already gone to undergraduate and I have a doctorate in something else and I've worked for 10 years in that field. And is that all "quote unquote" a waste because I'm switching? And I, I don't think that that's true.
0: No, I don't no. think so at all. And I, I think I guess the you know important thing is that you know you should do something that you like and care about, and whether that's conservation or something else, you know you should find your thing. And it doesn't really yeah. matter when you find it. Like it doesn't matter if you're 17 or you're 70. It doesn't matter. No,
2: and it is. I mean, it is something not scary to, to start all over again. Yeah, of but, course. You know, but it's it's worth it in the end if it's what you really want to do.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I also feel like the pandemic has been like a time when a lot of people have like re-evaluated what they want to do Yeah, mm-hmm. with their lives. And th- I've seen a lot of like amazing changes that people have made where people have just gone, you know, what? I'm dropping this. This is rubbish. I don't like it. And I spent... 20 years doing it but I don't care um I'm just gonna go and do something else now and it's like good good for you I think it's put a lot of things into perspective for a lot of people I'm super curious because Erin you mentioned sort of career aptitude tests or like sort of career guidance of some description at school
2: yeah it was just some like if I can remember correctly it was some sort of not a quiz yeah but it was sort of a multiple choice questionnaire about what you're interested in yeah. to try to guide you. I mean, we don't have A-levels and all that kind of stuff. I You can kind of pick, oh, I want to do like more art classes or, oh, I want to do this and that. But you, you pretty much just have, everybody takes the same things. Mm-hmm. You know, you take a language, you take math, you take science. And so it was kind of something that was supposed to help
0: you yeah uh, Chloe did you ever get anything like that is that something that you get in the UK system at all or? it
1: is yeah I remember doing a, a computer-based quiz but I'm mm. struggling to remember what it was that main, mine came up with I remember it being just a total anticlimax, like oh that's that's crap like I'm thinking <laughs> genuinely that that the thing was pointless because it was so sort of either vague or wrong mm. um yeah and I remember having career ad- careers advice at university as well and I can't remember when it was actually I think it was a meeting that we were told to have with a careers advisor and I remember just thinking well this doesn't mean anything to me and it's not tailored either so I don't know that anything had moved on particularly well. And I don't know that they necessarily would have known about conservation either.
0: Yeah. As an option. It's funny to me because I know that there was like a career guidance counsellor or something at like in, in school, like they, they had an office, but like I never met them. And I, I never recall them coming to class or anything. Like I just feel like, what was their purpose? <laughs> to sit there in your office and not interact with the with the kids I don't know I I don't I just don't remember ever meeting them or seeing them or hearing anything about them really so it's sort of interesting
2: yeah Uh, and I I don't think that that you know 20 minute quiz that I took necessarily helped me figure anything out because I still went to university undecided yeah I didn't have any sort of major picked
1: there's a number of different issues around this I think aren't there when is it that people find out about it and how do people find out about it so if we're if for the purposes of diversity we want to get people early I guess people in schools knowing about it so there's the potential of getting into conservation degrees with the like student loan system and stuff like that then we'd need it to be more visible on school visits and stuff to museums. Um, Mm. And then there's, I was thinking about this at the beginning of the episode when we were talking about like what our perceptions of conservation first. So like the lab coats and the behind the scenes and all of that. And that's the kind of barrier to entry of conservation, even if you decide that you like the idea of it. So I wondered if we could talk about the other ways that we've, felt or potentially could imagine other people feeling um, sort of blocked out of it? And then how to get into it? Like, how did people make the switch? Because there's the making the decision and then there's, you know, okay, so what does this mean? Do you leave your job? Do you Mm, apply for funding? How does it work?
0: Yeah, I mean, those are good questions. And um, uh, something related to that is that, so basically, we stay at school a little bit longer in Sweden, like another year, compared to mo- to most people. So the optional bit of school was three years. So you finish when you're 19, not 18. So that means that the earliest you can go to uni is when you're 19. Yeah. And because that meant that I missed the application window uh, through UCAS, that meant that I had to take a gap year. So I was 20 when I went to uni, and in my first degree that really made me feel quite alien, other than the fact that I was a foreigner, because actually everyone else around me was 18. And surprisingly, two years makes a huge difference at that point. It does (laughs) then, doesn't it? Yeah, it's Mm. surprising. Um, And I felt really old and like it, it was just super uncomfortable. But then by the time I went to Cardiff and did my master's, People were such different ages, they were from different countries, they were different stages of their lives, some had families, some had previous careers, there were all sorts and it was so freeing. I just really liked that about it and I guess that's something that I want to tell people is that actually people do fight it at, at all times and don't feel like you will be the only one out because you won't necessarily be. It depend- I bet that depends on the program etc but you know...
1: How did you find it, Erin, when you, when you did it? Well, what I what made me choose Cardiff
2: is that it was a conversion course. Ah, yes, yes, and yes. so you didn't have to have a super strong background in science or art or history or anything like that. And so I think that really helped a lot ease my fears. And I think a lot of my classmates, I have, you know, a classmate that he used to be a data anal- analysis and worked on a chicken farm. But, you know, we have somebody who studied history, somebody who was fine art major. Um, And so it's really just like a wide variety of people. And um like you said before, Jenny, there was like lots of ages. I'm the oldest one. You know, somebody is right out of uni. A lot of people have done other things for a couple of years. So they're kind of in their mid-20s. And then there's a couple of us that are late 30s for me. And then, you know, early to mid-30s for some other people. And so I just think it's just it being the conversion course really helped me to know that, okay, they don't expect me to have this high level of knowledge already going in. And that made me feel a lot more comfortable that everybody was kind of on the same playing field sort of thing.
0: Oh, it's such a big deal to not be scared of the science. That's the thing. Like a lot of people are really freaked out. I think that's a lot of the lab code stuff as well, where it's like, this is, people need to have a chemistry degree for this. No, no, you don't. There is chemistry involved, but Mm -hmm. I would say that that might be an off-putting thing for quite a lot of people.
1: Do you know how your classmates are working it practically? So have they gone for like later career funding? um, Or do they, are they working through, obviously, no need for specifics, because it's a personal question. But it's interesting to know the different options.
2: I'm doing loans through the US government. I know that some people are funding it mm-hmm. themselves, um, they've saved. And I know that there are certain grants available. I'm not 100% sure what everybody mm-hmm. is doing. I know that One of my classmates is American, and he's doing it through the GI
1: Bill. What is that?
2: Once you've been in the U.S. military, then you get Mm. funding to go to university once you're out of the military.
1: Oh, yeah, that's the thing. Wow.
2: Yeah, and another classmate works in Singapore as a conservator, and her work is paying for her to come to the course. So I think there's a lot of different people doing a lot of different things.
0: Oh, Amazing just gets to show that there are a lot of different ways of going about it
1: yeah and that it's not it's not always necessarily kind of financially impossible yeah so obviously there's a saving element but also grants and stuff are available if you if you sort of Mm -hmm. seek them out it's it's just putting in that kind of um I suppose well I'm gonna say it The positivity to think yeah I can do it I'm just I just have to try kind of thing I know that's really that glosses over a lot of the struggles but Mm -hmm. I know personally that there were you know grants and scholarships and stuff that I didn't go for in either archaeology or in conservation because I thought well why would anyone give me the money to do it I'm just gonna I'm just going to f- save up myself because I'm not going to get any funding. No, that's a rubbish attitude. <laughs> that's not necessarily the case. I know, I know. I think it's because I think I tried to get some funding in, in archaeology once and I wasn't given it because, like, I don't know, nobody wanted to do Paleolithic religion. <laughs> um, and at the same time, my sister was doing physics and she was getting all the funding everywhere. And I was like,
0: oh, fine then. But you also miss 100% of the shots you don't take.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs>
0: so yeah (laughs) and of course we're trying to get apprenticeships off the ground as well
1: maybe this is an an invite now for icon to tell us where we are with that because we were talking about um i realize there's a pandemic that's been in the way a bit but we were talking about um that apprenticeships were on the way in 2009 was it 2019 when did we go down to london when did we do the uh that that was
0: 2018 oh
1: man was it okay well in that case like three years ago and it'd be really good to get them going and and at least open the conversation more about what the kind of employer attitudes would be and how it would work so tell you what i will check (laughs) yeah yeah let's do let's let's do that as a follow-up
0: and here's jenny from the future uh with a follow-up. In fact, we get a hold of Patrick from Icon and he is giving us a bit of an update. Here you go.
3: So where are we with apprenticeships? So well first off, so what's the state of play? Well for conservation both standards are fully registered and approved and they now have an endpoint assessment organization in place, which means that learners can actually start on the standards now. Um thinking about this it's important just to remember that there are four groups involved in each apprenticeship so of course there's the apprentice um, there's the employer who hosts and importantly pays and teaches them on the job there's a training provider so a college or university to provide the on-programme formal training and finally an endpoint assessment organization so who through assessment certifies whether the apprentice has met the required standard of the apprenticeship um, but, endpoint assessment, in particular, so what does this mean? Um, so the shake up of the apprenticeship model back in two thousand and twelve introduced the idea of endpoint assessment for apprenticeships and similar to trade exams of the past, this is an independent assessment at the end of an apprenticeship um, by an organization who hasn 't directly trained or employed the apprentice to independently verify that the apprentice has met the required level of practice across the different knowledge, skills and behaviours that are defined by the Apprenticeship Standard. Um, So in this role ICON is registered with the Government as the Endpoint Assessment Organisation for both of the conservation standards and so similar to delivering ICON accreditation we will arrange an assessment by accredited conservators at the end of an apprentice to effectively sign them off as having met the required standard. Um, For both the level 4 and level 7 conservation standards, this is going to be done through a written project and then a professional discussion supported by a portfolio of evidence. The final thing for the update is who is offering the apprenticeships. So there are currently two training providers registered. So the level seven is being offered by the University of Lincoln and the level four is being offered by West London College, Um, although there are currently more providers looking to get set up and registered for these standards. Um, To get involved as an employer, the best thing to do is to get in touch with one of those training providers directly who they'll be able to talk you through the process. Um, And if you're a potential apprentice, well, you could get in touch directly with the training providers. Um, However, do remember that vacancies are also going to be advertised um, on the .gov website as well as on the sites of individual employers.
0: Well, there you go. That's the official update. You're welcome. Uh, Let's get back to the episode. But yes, I, I think there are quite a few things that can be intimidating about going into conservation. And I think maybe... I mean, I'm sort of hoping that we help make things less scary uh, by by talking about what we do and uh, sharing that with people. You know, anyone can listen to this. I'm just sort of hoping that we're doing our bit of making this sound less scary because...
1: If we all talk about it, if we all kind of um, try and engage with different audiences and stuff, then that's just going to be a huge improvement. The big like public-facing conservation campaigns like restoration of the night watch it's in a big sort of tank and people the, the p- members of the public can watch conservation going on it's amazing oh, i, I uh, love seeing conservation in action i love it so much there's a window into my studio that i've talked a lot about because i love it so mm. much and we yeah. it makes me feel very proud and uh, <laughs> i'm gonna say proactive even though i do very little to actually <laughs> you know i didn't put the window there when there are kids <laughs> at the window in my museum, and they're looking at me, and they're like craning their necks to see what I'm doing, and they wave, and they're looking at the, the, the sort of activities in front of them. Yeah, that makes me think. Yes, you will remember. This is the kind of thing that people don't get and they don't know about conservation so yeah we need more stuff like that
0: yeah I, I love that stuff like it's it's really fun to be like cleaning something in front of people yeah or exactly e- even going around and just doing the like light monitoring in a gallery and having people ask you what you're doing that's super fun uh, it's all about those conversations right that, that all that all helps
2: i think it's somewhat of a we're somewhat of an in, invisible middleman a lot of people know about archaeologists and, that you know, what they do. And a lot of people think, oh, people who work in the museum, they're the curators and, you know, they know a lot about art. But I don't, like we talked about earlier, I don't think the word conservation really gets thrown around, at least from when I was growing up.
0: Another thing I was going to say is that, right, so maybe we should go to career fairs. Maybe we should yes. make people aware that we exist and not just in terms of like, oh, we should be on more tv shows or in more news articles like and that's fine but more like what else can we be doing something i really enjoyed at my last place of work is that the education officer there basically designed a school session that was about the different jobs in the museum adorable it's really fun that's cool it featured conservation and it featured all the other jobs in a museum Jen says that she ran her own illustrations and graphic design business, uh, and before that did animal care. Uh, Those, again, seem very different to me, which is sort of fascinating. Uh, Megan went from webmaster and working in IT to knowledge management to conservation. Uh, That sounds like an intriguing sort of meandering path. I love it. Hillary used to edit financial research for like big banks and financial firms. Crikey. I do not know what that means, but it sounds exhausting.
1: It does. It sounds very <laughs> important and high, high, uh, high impact.
0: It feels very stressful. Sorry if you're listening, Christina, but did Christina not do accounting, accountancy? Was that not a thing like in a previous life or was it that she studied to do accountancy? I can't remember now, but I feel like there was definitely some numbers based stuff mm, in there. yeah. Um, Melinda says that um, she did design retail and then worked as a breastfeeding counselor did not even know there was a thing but that makes total sense yeah Um, amazing Um, and then conservation amazing Uh, super cool that's such a transition I love it Uh, Ellie used to be a flight attendant cool. Kathy used to be a librarian. Okay, we've got librarians again. <laughs> librarians in the house. <laughs> um H used to work for Apple, but in an undisclosed capacity. Did not say in what way, oh, but used to work well, for Apple.
1: The mega tech.
0: Again, we got tech people. Uh Leslie used to be a life model. Is is that when you is that when you get naked and get drawn? Is that, is y- that Yeah, I mean?
1: it's the, a way of training drawing as a very, very very traditional method of learning to draw the human
0: form and it's not always
1: naked but it traditionally is
0: cool <laughs> well thank you for clarifying and then later worked as a data analyst oh my god again with the data <laughs> chris used to be a historical interpreter at a heritage attraction um in america somewhere cool Love it. Uh, and someone else used to be a teacher uh, and those were all of the uh, ones that I could, I was going to say harvest, but those were all of the ones <laughs> I could save. Because in the great <laughs> outage of various Facebook owned things, uh, some of the replies got eaten. Um, <laughs> so no. if you didn't hear yours read out, it's because the great Facebook monster ate them all. We have lost a few replies. Sorry about that. Uh, but thank you for contributing them anyway. Um, I did read them, but I didn't write them down, which means that I'm not going to trust my really unreliable memory. Those are super cool different careers that people have come from. And some of them I'm just baffled by and I love. And others I'm like, oh, I can see a natural transition there. So again, I'm, I'm really enjoying the sort, of, um, the sort of wild variety that we're finding here. Thank you, everyone who contributed something to that. That was uh, amazing to hear about what you you 've done in previous lives um, super cool
1: so I feel a bit guilty because my friend has not written in, and i don 't know how well known this is as a, a previous career so i 'm just i 'm just going to say sorry, and if i 've got the details wrong i 'm sorry, but I really want to say pretty sure one of my friends used to be in something along the lines of bioscience or something like that and was in the business of um something to do with well it's to do with cattle breeding i think and something to do with bull semen oh <laughs> right i think something to do with test tubes and bull semen
0: amazing i mean
1: and then was like i'm not doing this anymore and decided to do
0: conservation instead amazing
1: so i'm sorry to my friend insert name here. Uh if I've got that wrong <laughs> and annoyed you, I'll buy you a beer
0: <laughs> to apologize. And if it was wrong, please do write in and correct. Today I'm reviewing Managing Change in Museums and Galleries, a practical guide by Piotr Biankowski and Hilary McGowan. It's a 2021 Rutledge publication, and I'm enjoying the digital version. Probably for my sins. I picked up this book, albeit virtually, for a number of reasons. One, conservators talk about managing change all the time. Two, uh, the past year and a half has been a time of incredible change for me personally. Three, our sector, by which I mean conservation itself, is in dire need of change if we want to survive and thrive. And four, we've been talking about changes throughout this whole episode, albeit career changes. Essentially, this is a book about leadership, which made me fret a little bit. It's not my standard fare, and I'm no longer embedded in a big organization, so I immediately felt a twang of imposter syndrome. Who might be reading a book aimed at leaders? But I suppose it might contain a thing or two that's useful even to ordinary mortals, so I shall press on for you, dear listener. The book is split into six parts, each with many little bite-sized chapters, so let's go through each one very briefly the parts not the chapters part one is called what is change and i like that it immediately grapples with what i think of when i hear the words organizational change i think of redundancies doing more with less time and expecting part-time employees to do full-time jobs i've seen it so many times and it's hard not to have that knee-jerk reaction after a couple of years in the heritage sector so i'm sort of grateful that we addressed the elephant in the room straight away We also explore that change doesn't look the same in any two places, that most change takes time, and that the sort of short-term thinking that plagues the sector is actually sort of poisoning it. Each chapter contains a central nugget of information or some food for thought, often accompanied by a quote from a museum professional. Although not always, I saw at least one Bible quote slip in. (laughs) Don't let that put you off. Part 2 is called Preparing for Change, and as you may expect, it's focused on figuring out the why as well as the how. My favorite takeaway from this section is the importance of a common purpose, a vision everyone shares, or at least knows exists. The chapter on modeling change made my head hurt and reminded me of why I'm not a grand strategist, but overall I like this part of the book. My favorite chapter in this section is called Expect Chaos, and I feel like that should be a motto, or maybe a tattoo. Part three is leading change and looks at what makes a good leader for change as well as a whole host of topics useful to people leading organizations big and small. My favorite is probably the chapter on embracing failure and admitting fault. A topic we've often brought up on the show as something really vital for conservatives to do more of. Not every story is one of success and talking about that is both brave and necessary all at once. Part four is all about the role of staff and volunteers in making change happen. The chapter on fear of change resounded particularly well as their behaviors have seen both in colleagues and in myself on occasion. The chapter about countering resistance was a crash course in savvy soft skills and one I recommend that everyone reads regardless of whether or not you're a manager. Its insights will help you work with clients and colleagues alike. Other good chapters include a very psychological take on how to best support staff, how to improve morale and the importance of acknowledging our emotions. Part 5 is entitled Why Change Fails and deals with some of the common pitfalls and ideally how to avoid them if you can. The final section of the book is about evaluating and learning from change. This is all a bit managey for my taste but I like the part about reflective practice which is much more my style of taking stock after a project or event. I love the chapter on using external voices, as this isn't done nearly enough in our relatively closed-off industry, so if you read only one thing from this section, let that one be it. At the end, you'll find some excellent resource lists and recommended reading if you're hungry for more. This book is, in its own words, aimed at practitioners, and not a how-to guide or toolkit. The short-form chapters with their headings put me more in mind of a self-help book, or the sort of book aimed to focus the mind by giving you a daily meditation. That's not the intent either, of course, but it has some of that flavor. I would say this book is more useful to managers than the people at the top, more than the people on the shop floor, as it were, even though part four is trying to be a bit more about employees and volunteers. I think an introspective person who'd like to examine their own emotional responses to change would find it useful as a sort of troubleshooting guide, but it doesn't feel quite accessible enough to be for everyone in the sector. I like the central message that change is everybody's job, though, because it is. This publication is pleasantly free, at least largely, of case studies, and instead draws on the author's considerable experience in the sector, and it shows. Suitably anonymized or tastefully vague examples are trotted out when needed, but mostly you definitely get the vibe of elders sharing their wisdom. No offense to either author, I have no concept of your age, and I don't mean to suggest you're old, just that you're knowledgeable. The use of quotes is much more effective at conveying what a chapter is trying to do, and reminds me a little bit of Culture Is Bad for You, which is another experience-based and well-researched book we reviewed a while back. Anyway, if it takes your fancy, this book has 210 pages and costs £29.99, British pounds, by the way, from the publisher in paperback format. If you're enjoying The C-Word and would like to support our work, then please consider becoming one of our patrons. For as little as $1 per month, you can help us keep our episodes online and more of them coming. Patreon helps us meet our regular costs for the show, and also to plan ahead so we know roughly how much of a monthly budget we've got. That's super helpful when you're trying to do something special like buy a better microphone or save up to go to a special event. Your support also helps keep us free of advertisements. In return, our supporters get access to our archive of extended episodes, which you can only access on our Patreon page. Yeah, for that one dollar a month you get a little extra audio enjoyment. We've crushed the numbers, and it's about ten percent extra content on a regular basis. Well it's not bad for less than a cup of coffee, eh? If supporting us sounds like something you'd like to do, then head over to patreon.com slash the C word and join our bunch of absolute champions. Thanks for listening. We're the Seaword and you'll be listening to Erin Foster, Chloe Rumsey, and me, Jen Matthiason. Join us next time for an episode about Halloween! In the meantime, check out our website at thesewood.show, tweet us at the Podcast, or simply email us on thesewoodpodcast at gmail.com intro and music is spring by Deed Missick used under Creative Commons attribution license. Additional music by Callum Robertson This has been a Wooden Dice production
1: Great Chloe anecdote I don't know any of the details Let me just look them up
0: <laughs> Don't have a breakdown,
1: don't <laughs> worry ah! <it's> fine. <laughs> I can't even remember the name of the museum